quick disclaimer before we start this episode, because we are heading to Mongolia, they have some pretty out there cuisine. We're going to be talking about some weird things, innards from different sort of meat products. So if you're a bit squeamish, this might not be the right episode for you. You have been warned. Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode, we explore what dishes to eat in Outer Mongolia. We discuss how Mongolian food is based on red food and white food. We find out what it is and why. Plus, is Mongolia's most famous dish actually from Mongolia at all? Okay, welcome to another episode of The Dish, everybody. I hope you're all hungry, but if you are, you might be a little bit disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in this episode, we're talking about what to eat in Mongolia, and it is a surprisingly unusual set of foods, maybe not things you're expecting, and uh, it's pretty crazy. It's one of the only countries I've visited that I actively lost weight in just because I didn't find the food all that great and I avoided it at all costs. But (laughs) we thought it would be something that people would be really interested in hearing about. It's a really unique culture. You know, there's a lot of stuff there that you wouldn't know about Mongolian food and the Mongolian diet. So we thought we'd do an episode on it because, I don't know, I thought some people might be interested to find out. I mean, I remember there were a few dishes that I definitely didn't hate. There was some stuff that's actually fine. Yeah, so the main, main issue is that I'm not a big fan of lamb, and as you're going to learn as we continue on in this episode, uh, Mongolian diet is mutton, 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 and mutton. Yeah, lamb, goat, camel, lots of that going on. Yeah. So, not, not my favorite thing, so, but, so yeah, that's why I lost weight, but yeah, there's some things that, uh, that they did all right, and we're going to have a little bit of a chat about it today. So, let's just talk a little bit about uh, the Mongolian diet. To begin with, just so you get a little bit of a background about what sort of things that they actually do eat and why they eat it and all that sort of stuff. All right. Um, so it's probably no surprise that the, as we just said, the Mongolian diet consists largely of animals and animal fat. In fact, Mongolians actually refer to their diet as either being white or red. So white refers to the large amounts of dairy that they consume, and red is, of course, the meat. Meat, meat, meat is what they have. So it's, they just have a red or white diet. Their fatty, meaty diet is actually one that is necessary for them because they have to withstand these really crazy cold winters. And they're out there working on, you know, on the steeps and it's really cold. Temperatures drop as low as 40 degrees Celsius, which is apparently also 40 degrees, negative 40. Negative 40 yeah, degrees. Yeah, definitely. 40 ah! would be a very warm winter. Oh, it's so hot this winter. <laughs> negative degree, negative 40 degrees Celsius, which is also negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I looked it up. I don't know how it works, but that is what it is. It's because one scale moves quicker than the other, so they have to converge at some point. That's where and it that's, happens. That's where it happens that's- in Mongolia. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of the outdoor work that they do in these stupidly cold temperatures, you know, uses up a lot of energy reserves. And so they have a lot of animal fat to keep them going. You might also be really interested to know that Mongolians don't eat with chopsticks like their Chinese neighbors do. They usually use a spoon, fork, knife, as we do, or just their hands. Quite Using their hands is actually quite a common thing. We definitely used our hands quite a lot. We did, yeah. So today, food in Mongolia, it does maintain a lot of links to the country's nomadic traditions and also now has influences from Russia, China, and other Central Asian countries. So there's a lot of influence that's come in, like wafer biscuits. There's wafer biscuits everywhere now. And, and even just the introduction of bread came, you know, came from outside. The staples of the Mongolian diet are, as we said before, boiled mutton. Uh, they do Tibetan-style dumplings, which we'll discuss more, and tea, 
which they mix with sheep, cow, camel, or horse milk, which we are also going to get a little bit deeper into later on in the episode. Tasty so far? So, yeah, as you can imagine from what I've told you with a lot of their food being so fatty, and I can tell you from personal experience, it is quite heavy, greasy, fatty food. They actually say that the mutton in particular is so fatty that it gives off a nauseating smell that penetrates everything, even the money. I mean, that sounds appetizing, doesn't it? (laughs) But I was thinking when I read this, I was thinking back to it and I was like, the money does smell weird. And it is, it does feel like a little greasy because they're always like handling it after they've eaten stuff and whatnot. I, I don't know. I was like, actually. Meaty money. Meaty money. Meaty muttony money. I don't remember that personally, but my aversion to lamb and mutton is much less than yours. So That's perhaps true. I just wasn't paying attention. Yeah. You might have noticed that I haven't mentioned anything about fruit and vegetables. So uh, obviously, uh, previously in Mongolia, vegetables and fruits were in very relatively short supply, being negative 40 degrees in the winter, you ain't growing too much. But uh, as more people are being influenced by outside foods, this is becoming more sought after by younger Mongolians. But there is actually a saying in Mongolia that says, meat is for men and grass is for animals. (laughs) That's a good one. Yep. But, uh, you know, wheat's a grass and they seem to like eating bread, so... Yeah, but I don't think they're into like leafy vegetables and stuff like that. And actually, (laughs) apparently you'll find some Mongols still today refuse to eat vegetables for health reasons. (laughs) I don't know what story they've been told about vegetables or they had like some rancid ones or something. But for health reasons, they choose to not eat vegetables. Well, this would be a good case study because they seem to survive through the winter somehow eating mainly just meat and dairy. Mm -hmm. So maybe we don't need fruit and vegetables after all. Maybe we've been sold a lie. (laughs) (laughs) No, they actually have this because they eat so much fatty foods. They have this particular problem that happens with their thyroid in their neck and it bulges out and can become cancerous. So no, Mm. no. All right. Maybe not then. No, it's not good. Yeah. So in the summer months, milk products rule. In the winter... Meats rule, but they actually have a dried meat that is their staple food. And I discovered this meat and we were there in the summer months, but we probably actually tried this a lot in the soups that we had and we didn't even realize it. It's called Bort's um, and it is a dried meat product. And it's something that I'm going to explain a little bit later on in the episode when we get into like the certain foods that people eat. But I was really surprised. I was like, oh, there's a dried meat that they do. And oh, it's in a lot of, oh, I probably ate this. Yeah. In addition to the dried meats and the regular meats they eat in the summer, it is also something we should point out that all the parts of the sheep are always consumed. Yeah, they don't waste. No. Of course. So this includes the heart, the intestines, the kidneys, the eyeballs, the brains, the head, the tail. They're all eaten. Yep. Hey, I mean, like, in Western culture, we're eating a lot of that just without realizing it in burgers or something. Sausages. Sausages. We just don't know that we're eating it, probably. Yeah, that's true. But we, uh, one thing, unlike here, where we try and hide it away, there in Mongolia, the sheep's head is regarded as a delicacy. And the parts of the head you get uh, to eat are in, quarter, are in order of, like, the pecking order of the household. So, guests share the best part of the meat, along with the seniors, and the juniors get all the bits that they don't want. So, but the eyeball is quite sought after. I thought the eyeball went to the head of the family, the oldest person, oldest male on the table. Yeah, so you might think that that's not, that would be left to the juniors, but nope. Head of the table gets those eyeballs. Isn't there a thing where it's like every single organ goes to a different person specifically? That's what I thought. I tried to find this, but I couldn't find any on, yeah, because we had read this previously or heard it while we were there in Mongolia. I did try to find reference to this and I couldn't find which bits go where. Yeah, they were pretty like- much just glossing over going, the best bits go to the seniors and the not best bits go to everybody else. Yeah, maybe they've got a bit more democratic about the situation these days than traditionally. Yeah. Because they're like, well, come on, we can all try different bits. We don't have to just eat the spleen. It certainly was not like that when we were there, but that was a few years ago now. And if you're wondering, this feast is uh, often known as the Five Fingers Feast. uh, And it's called this because everybody gets in there and eats it with their hands. And it is actually quite an honor to be invited to this meal. And it's something that people do seek out while they're there to try and get this experience. Let's clarify. The Five Fingers Feast is... Is a full boiled carcass. Yeah, so not just the head. So the yeah, so the head is there. The head is there. But it's like, yeah, it is the full kitten caboodle, the whole No kittens. 
Definitely no kittens Kit or poodles. Because Kit kittens and poodles. <laughs> if like, anyone misunderstanding your accent would think you said kitten and poodle. The whole the, kitten and poodle. They yeah. don't cook kittens and poodles. They is definitely going to be like a whole lamb, mutton, goat, or something else of that size that they can fit in a pot. Yeah. Chopped into pieces, all thrown in, boiled up with salt. That is it. That's it. That's and all you then, get. And yeah, they shit. They put it all out in the middle of the table. Everyone sits around and takes different bits. And yeah, if you start taking the bits that grandfather wants, you are going to be in a lot of trouble. You'll be out in the cold. Yep. In the negative 40 degree cold. And you don't last long in the negative 40 cold. No, so you don't. You don't take don't. the wrong bits. Uh, but there are a couple of other rules that you should know if you are at a, a family gathering of Mongolians. One of the main things that you should know if visiting a Gur or a local Mongolian home is that visitors are expected to take at least one small piece or a sip of whatever is offered to them. No matter what it is. Yeah. Otherwise, it is considered exceptionally rude. You can't say no. And let's clarify, the gur is uh, the equivalent of a yurt. You've probably heard of a yurt. They have them at like festivals in Europe yeah, these days. Now they're a hip festival thing that Gwyneth but, Paltrow sleeps in. Yeah. A, a gur is just the Mongolian name for exactly the same sort of thing. And that's what they will deconstruct and carry around to different pastures depending on the season and reconstruct and live in it. So, yeah, massive Mongolian tent that you can have the whole family, like 20 people living in. Exactly. And if you're in that gur and someone offers you something, it is very rude if you turn it down. So you just take it and eat it no matter what it is. You can take a small piece. Yeah, you, but you just have to accept something and eat it, consume exactly. it in some way. At the same time, it's also good to know that you shouldn't just eat absolutely everything in sight, especially like I think like in Western culture, we can t- sort of eat everything that's on our plate and in order to be like, mmm, I ate that really quick. It was so good. And now it's all gone. Yeah. Um, where we're like, yeah, I just got that done and out of the way as quickly as I possibly could to not be offensive. They will see an empty bowl or an empty plate as an invitation for more, no matter what it is. So if you don't want more on your plate, always make sure that you leave a little bit behind and they should just get the idea of, oh, they're full, so they couldn't eat it all. But if you eat it all and it's all gone, you're going to get some more of whatever that nasty is they're serving up. <laughs> I mean, I've got to clarify that not everything is nasty. If you like lamb, some of the food is fine. Like, really, it is. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a bit. I'm being incredibly harsh on Mongolian culture just because you don't like lamb. I know. I know. I know. So, yeah, Tom, Tom made quite well there. He was quite happy to eat everything I didn't want to eat. I mean, I did want vegetables a lot after a month of being in Mongolia. I was like, why have we only had pickled cucumbers and a couple of potatoes? And everything else yeah. has been pretty much meat and bread and yeah, dairy. I, yeah, I, we were eating cucumbers, pickled cucumbers from a jar. And that was our vegetable in some of the places, yeah. which is insane. So anyway, that's a little bit of an insight into just uh, Mongolian food, you know, and culture and, you know, a little bit of background so you understand. And now we can dive into more of what exact dishes you can expect to have if you do happen to visit Mongolia. So starting off with the dish that is probably known worldwide, and I'm sure you, everyone's waiting to hear about this, Mongolian barbecue, which is also what some of you might have heard of as Mongolian beef. Surprise, 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 you will actually not find this Mongolian barbecue feast in many places in Mongolia. It is actually completely not a Mongolian dish, so I don't know how many people actually know this, but- uh, I mean, yeah. seemingly outside of Mongolia- like in other countries like the US and Australia, this is one of the few dishes that is called Mongolian. Exactly. Something. So it makes it sound like it's Mongolian, but it's not, right? It's not at all. It is uh, Mongolian barbecue is a stir fried dish that was developed by a guy called Wu Zhaonan. And of course, as we know it, it is meats and vegetables that are cooked on a large, round, solid iron griddle in a really hot temperature. And they kind of cook it all up really hot and then they slap it into your bowl and then you get to eat it nice and fresh. And that's what we know as Mongolian beef, Mongolian barbecue. But it was invented by a Chinese guy, as I said, Wu Xiaonan, and he invented it when he was living in Taiwan. So Wu was actually a native of Beijing. He fled to Taiwan because of the outbreak of the Chinese Civil War. And that was, that was about 1945 to 1949. So it didn't actually say when he left China, but it, it was pretty much, you know, things were going down in China. And he's like, bye. Was he from Mongolia? Nope. Not at all. Nope. Just, just Chinese. Nope, just Chinese. So uh, he went and he settled in Taiwan and he decided to open up a street food stall in 1951. And he actually originally wanted to call the dish Beijing Barbecue. 
that's what he wanted to like as a homage to where he came from and where he grew up. But because of political sensitivity to the city of Beijing, which had just recently been designated as the capital of communist China, doesn't go down so well with the rest of the world at that time. Of Taiwan's not particularly on good terms with China at that point, so no. No, they're not going to be happy. Uh, so he settled with Mongolian barbecue instead, even though it had absolutely no connection to Mongolia. He just thought it sounded good. <laughs> It sort of does. It does sound good. Beijing, but Beijing barbecue sounds pretty good too. Yeah. The Mongolian barbecue. And it's stuck. And that's what everybody knows. And it actually became really popular going all around the world. I've had Mongolian barbecue in Australia. Definitely. I definitely know they have it in America and and other places. But his actual stall was later destroyed by flooding caused by a typhoon in which he actually almost drowned in. It's a really bad typhoon. Completely destroyed his, his stall. And he was like, well... Decided not to rebuild, left the restaurant no. business, and then developed a highly successful career as a comedian. And then, obviously, someone stole his idea for the food, and that was that. Well, by then, it had already become so popular in other areas, like it had grown and people had taken the idea and taken it. So, he didn't own, like, the rights to it or anything like that. He was just the first guy to do it. People who came through Taiwan saw it, thought it was cool, took it to other countries and went, yep, this is we're going to rip this dude off. And, Yeah. But he is still credited as being the guy that actually created it. But once again, uh, not Mongolian in any way, shape or form. All right. So we had to get that out of the way. Mongolian beef, Mongolian barbecue, whatever you've had that has like Mongolian in the beginning of it, because there's actually no Mongolian food that starts with Mongolian Blah, blah, blah. That we've ever heard of. Then. then you've never, then it's not from Mongolia. Generally, people say that uh, if it has Mongolia in the beginning of it, it just kind of gives the allure of being exotic. Yeah, I mean, I think Mongolia is very exotic, even though when you go there, it's actually not exotic in the sort of East Asian sense. It's unknown. Yeah, exotic's the wrong word. Yeah. It's like, what is Mongolian stuff? Which is sort of what we thought it would be interesting to do this episode because we're like, well, I bet no one really knows what Mongolian food is, and they probably have just had Mongolian barbecue and not a lot else. Exactly. So, hopefully we haven't completely disappointed you all by hearing that you're not going to get that in Mongolia. You might in in Ulaanbaatar now. Maybe. That would be so weird that they've taken a Taiwanese dish, taken it back to Ulaanbaatar, and been like, yeah, sure, it's our food. Yeah, you never know. Here's the authentic, real Mongolian barbecue. (laughs) But, okay, let's talk about the food that you actually can eat in Mongolia. Uh, Now, the first one I'm going to talk about is something that I did actually thoroughly enjoy because I'm a dumpling fiend. What can I say? I love me dumplings. Uh, And this dish is called buz, which is actually spelt B-U-U-Z. Booze. Booze. And it could almost probably be called the national dish of Mongolia. It's really that popular. It's definitely one of the national dishes. Yeah, it's definitely got to be one of them, if not the. So, booze is a type of Mongolian steamed dumpling, which is filled with minced mutton, or you can have beef if you're lucky. Um, And they flavor it with onion and or garlic, and uh, and it's all just salted, the whole mixture is salted. Occasionally, they're flavoured with uh, sprouted fennel seeds and other seasonal herbs. And sometimes you can get some mashed potato, cabbage or rice, which could be added as well. Pretty much the only ones we tried were meat and maybe some rice, but it was mostly just meat. I, we didn't have any of this fennel seeds or anything fancy I like that. I don't know that. where people are eating ones that fancy. No, it's very fancy. That's got to be Ulaanbaatar only pretty much, right? Yeah. Like, you go out of the city and everything is pretty basic. Yeah. So, buz is obviously not a Mongolian invention. It's the version of steamed dumplings that you will find in China known as baozi, uh, which is the Mandarin word for steamed dumpling. Easy. Easy, easy. They are eaten in massive quantities throughout the year, but especially during the Mongolian New Year's celebration, which falls in February is when they do their New Year's celebration, and they love eating some booze. During this time, booze are prepared, like in the lead up to the celebration. They're prepared weeks before the event. And then, because there's so many of them, where do they keep them? Uh, Underneath the bed? Nope. They just put them outside and let them freeze. Of course, natural freezer. Natural Easy. freezer. And uh, and then, yeah, they're consumed, usually accompanied by Mongolian tea or a nice chaser of vodka. Why not meat and vodka? Meat and vodka. That's dumplings and vodka. Meaty dumplings and vodka. If it's a freezing cold night, that's what you want. Yeah. So, we really enjoyed booz. It's definitely something that pretty much any little roadside 
food stop or restaurant, cafe, whatever you come across on your travels, they're going to probably be selling some booze. But you have to wait for it. It usually is. I mean, unless it's February, which you probably don't want to be in Mongolia then, and they've got some sitting outside frozen, it is a dish that's usually made fresh. So, you've got to sit there and wait. Um, if you are starving, the, the anticipation is, is terrible. It will kill you. Uh, I found when we had road stops through Mongolia, I mean, you're traveling off-road, these places might get a few customers every couple of hours. So, they didn't have anything ready. Like no, never. ever. So most of the food you had to wait half an hour if you wanted them to cook something. There was a few dishes, maybe we'll be talking about them later in the episode, that were fast food, but almost everything else you'll be sitting around waiting for them to make it from scratch. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the next dish that we are talking about is something that is a little bit more of the fast food side, which is the hushur, which hushur. Hushur. Uh, it's spelled K-H-U-U-S-H-U-U-R. Easy. Easy. Basic, simple word. Sure. So, this is very, very similar to the buzz, um, but it is a meat pastry that's also relatively similar to the Russian uh, chibareki, apparently, if anyone has yeah. tried chibareki. Well, they got chibareki here in, in Georgia. It's just a deep fried pastry filled with meat. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of, some would say maybe it's related to burek as well. The word's sort of similar. I don't know if it is. Yeah. But all of these know. different like pastry with meat in sort of dishes from the Balkans, Russia, etc. might have some common thread. But it's not like a pastry pastry. I found it was more like a coating. Um, how would you explain the hushur? It was a dough pocket. Yeah, it was a dough was pocket. It? it was a single dough pocket with meat in the inside that they seal, they crimp around the outside, then they throw it in oil. But it kind of bubbles a bit because of the oil. So it, it's not like a pastry. It's more like, uh, what am I fried. trying to think of? I'm trying deep to think of like a, like a scallop. That reminds me of a- s- That's potato. Yeah. But like, you know how the outside goes all like sort of looks bubbly and stuff? That's what it reminded me of, but it was full of meat. Yeah, uh, it sort of looks a bit like that sort of thing, maybe, but um, it's dough. It's made with wheat, I believe. Yeah. And yeah, it's just when it fries, it, it bubbles up, of course, because yeah. they throw it in hollow and bam, there you go. And it's so uh, you're getting uh, plenty of calories right there. Oh my God, so many calories. But they were tasty. They, they were, were good. Tasty they were snacks. good. The innards of that are very similar to boars and that the meat is prepared in like the exact same way, um, but it's just cooked in that fried dough pocket. And this is the one that we found could come out really quick. So, we were in Mongolia around about the time of the Nadan Festival, which is their, like, I mean, sort of like the Olympics of Mongolia. People come out and they compete in horse riding and archery and and other different sports, wrestling, everything like that. And so, it's kind of like a carnival atmosphere and you could definitely get hushur just being cooked everywhere. It was the easy, you know, they'd just give it to you in like a bit of like paper and you'd go away and you'd have your quick and easy snack super fast to make super quick to cook so that's yeah so as i said it's created very similar to the booze where uh, meat is often beef or mutton but there are some areas where you can actually be made with camel yep i'm not surprised they got some camels down in the gobi desert there in uh, mongolia makes sense yeah exactly so i'm assuming i mostly ate beef or mutton but i really couldn't tell you because it's just a fried pocket of Fry, you know, fried doughy, doughy friedness. So I could have been eating anything. Plus, I mean, they've got a tendency to be like, well, we've got all of this different meat left over. So we'll just it's mix it together. Meat surprise. Yeah. It's not like uh, there's no purity going on of like, we're only using mutton for this particular dish. It's like, nah, we've got meat. This is meat. This is, here's your meat. It's this all is a, a little thing. mishmash of everything we had left over. And that's what you get because it's quick, fast street food. All right, so one of the other dishes they have is, I am not going to pronounce this correctly. I am so sorry. It's girl Thai shol. Girl, girl Thai shol, which is a hearty soup with meat or boats that I mentioned earlier in the episode. The dried meat. Yeah, and it's made with fried noodles. So it's like a fried noodle dish that has this meat in it. In a soup. In a soup. I remember this. Um, this had like a layer of oil on it the was top so- of the soup. <laughs> oh and lots of little fatty bits of meat in the soup. Oh, And so, little noodles. So, so fatty. I can't believe they fry the noodles before putting them in a soup. I mean, like, you can just boil the noodles at this stage. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely crazy. But I did mention that I would talk about what Bortz is, um, because I'm sure we must have had it when we had this soup. 
We did. We tried not to order it too much, but it because it was so fatty, it was insane. But yeah, this is the dried meat that they use in the winter, the boards. And the source of meat varies from region to region. So cow is the most common that they use. Um, but in Govi, camel meat is available, and so they use that. In the mountainous north, they use reindeer. And in some areas, horse meat is also a popular option. As we as you just said, it, they meat. use what meats laying around, right? Uh, so what they do is they prepare it by cutting the meat into long strips. They're about two to three centimeters thick and five to seven. Did I say meters? I thought you said centimeters. Good. I was like, whoa, that's whoa, huge. This is like a giant dish. That's yeah, huge. No, two to three centimeters thick and five to seven centimeters wide. And then the strips are hung on strings under the roof of the yurt where the air is free to circulate and dries out the meat. They leave it there for about a month, just right. hanging from the top of the yurt. This then, it, it turns into hard, small sticks, and apparently it has like a feel like wood once it's completely dried out, yeah. and they take on like a really brown color, as you would imagine, is what meat, dried out meat yeah, does. Yeah, it's like Mongolian jerky. Yeah, and so they say because the uh, drying process of the meat has shrunk the meat so much, it means that all of this meat can now very easily be stored away in the stomach of the same animal it came from. Mmm, oh, tasty. That's a good place to keep it. That is the, well, you know, that is the Mongolian refrigeration system. Yeah, but if this is dried meat, why does it even need to be refrigerated? I don't know, but uh, maybe it's just storing. You've got to store it somewhere. Yeah, and why have a box when you've got a stomach? What exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Exactly. So then after this, when they want to use it, the dried board's broken down into small pieces or ground into a coarse powder. And then it's um, often stored when they want to use it. Like this is when they're wanting to use it, when they're not storing it. They'll keep it in like a linen bag to allow it to have contact with a little bit more air. And this just allows it to be preserved for months or even years. And so when they want to use it, they just, of course, you know, it's like rehydrated in a way. They throw it in the soup and then it's kind of this meaty flavor. Yeah. So the long, harsh winters in Mongolia really make it necessary to store sufficient food sources in order to survive. And most of that will be this dried meat that is bought. Yeah. Yeah. It's a smart plan. Yeah. And they put it in soup and or tea. So, if you get a tea that's like got a little bit of a fattiness to it, which we did a few times and we thought it was butter. It was meat? It was probably meat. <laughs> meat tea. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a classic vegetarian's destination then, isn't it, really? Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a great vegetarian. This is like when vegans and vegetarians die and go to hell. They yep. basically just get dropped in Mongolia. Yeah, Exactly. I think more and more vegetarian options are becoming available in Ulaanbaatar, but if you want to venture outside of the capital, you're not going to have much luck. No, you need to bring lots of your own jars of pickles, just like we did. Just like we did. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting because we did go for a long time. It could have been butter in the tea, but it, it also very much could have been uh, just fatty meat. They do have a... A dry noodle dish as well, which I actually didn't mind. It was called Tsuvian. I quite like that. I liked the Tsuvian. Of course, it is served with... Meat. Mutton. Yeah, or whatever meat they've got. Yeah, exactly. So, this is most likely a traditional Chinese dish that was just made popular in Mongolia. It's it's stir-fried. It's stir-fried noodles. Exactly. With meat. But um, they've got, they're like short noodles, though. Because they actually make them by hand, right? Exactly, exactly. And the thing that makes this dish interesting that I didn't actually realize is that it apparently showcases a well-known, can't be that well-known because I didn't know about it, uh, one-pot cooking technique. So what they do is they make the stew with the mutton and, and everything. So it could be a stew for anything that they're making because they're always making stews at some point. Right. And then they put the fresh noodles on top of the stew, so the noodles get infused with the meaty stewness, like or like. So, like they're steaming them. Yeah, they over like, the the stew. Exactly. Yeah, so they steam them right on top, and that infuses the noodles with the flavor of the broth, and then they take the meat out from the stew, like because they got to soften the meat up, and then they mix it all together and fry it all up together and turn it into this noodly meaty dish. And if they do have a couple of vegetables, they do throw a couple of veggies in there, which is always pleasant. This was like the only dish we got served from a Mongolian restaurant that had vegetables in it. It was like cabbage and carrot. Cabbage and carrot might be shredded and a little bit thrown in. Still mostly meat. 
and noodles, but a little bit of that. Yeah. So this is actually found, this is another dish you can find all over and, and especially in rest stops that you can have. So this was like my go-to dish. Sometimes it's good. Some, I had actually some very good ones and some, and I had some very bad ones as well. So you can be pleased to know that there will be a bottle of ketchup close by <laughs> just in case you need to uh, smother the flavor, shall we say. Yeah, there's always a bottle of ketchup. Yeah. Or is it uh, ketchup and what did they have like the Maggie noodle flavoring? Yeah, sauce like the flavoring? brown, brown soy sauce? Maggie sauce. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes they had that, so you just put loads of that on and that could fix it. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So they are some of the main dishes that you will find uh that involves red. That's red. That's red. Red food because it's got meat in it. Yes. Right. Are you ready for white? Sure. Dairy time. Yes. So, white. So, I'm going to start with one that Tom absolutely loves. Oh, I think I know what this is going to be. Now, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's orum. 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 Which is uh, milk that's boiled to separate and become cream. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's like thick, clotted cream. Exactly. So, if you've ever been in the West Country of England, you would know what clotted cream is. Or if you're just English in general, you know what it is. That's true. Everyone knows what it is in English. So, rather than being white cream like a lot of us around the world know, it actually takes on a yellow tone. It's got more fat in it. It's very, very it's fatty. It's like 60% fat or something. It's like a cross between butter and cream. That's why it's sort of yellow. Yeah. And it's amazing. And the Mongolian version of it is, I was very surprised how close it was to the taste of the English version of clotted cream. Obviously, there's no relation between those dishes at all. No. It's just they independently figured out how to make cream and they make it as thick as possible. And pretty much what they do is they will get the milk and then they will, because of course you've got to churn it. So they pretty much keep the churn close to the doorway and it's kind of the rule that if you're going out or coming in of the gur, you just churn churn the milk a bit. Yeah. You know, sit there. It's easy. Yeah, churn it a bit and it's like the rule. You know, it was like a rule in my house after dinner that if you got up, you had to take all the dinner plates. So, no one wanted to get up first because- Everyone was too lazy to take all the dinner plates to the kitchen. So, this is the kind of thing. Like, it's like, if you get up, you got to churn the milk. So, what they do is, uh, so yeah, I said they take the milk and they boil it and they make it into the orum, clotted cream. And then they take the remaining skim milk and they process this into cheese, which is called bayaslag. And then they also take the curds and they dry it. And this is arul, which I'm going to speak about a little bit next. And they also make yogurt, kefir, and a light milk liqueur or liquor. A light milk liquor. It's going to be liquor. Yeah, called shimlim aki. So they take the milk and they make it into a whole bunch of stuff. They use every part of the milk. They, they use, use every part of the meat. Exactly. That's what you do. Now, all of this stuff, if you're making cheese and curds and clotted cream, does need to be stored somewhere. And they don't have refrigeration in these girls, do they, Tom? Nope. Where do they store them, Tom? Stomach. <laughs> Inside a stomach. <laughs> yeah, we're not joking about no, this. No, not at We've all. We've been there. We've seen the stomachs under people's beds in the girl. Yeah. And they are storing dairy inside the stomach and apparently meat. I didn't realize they stored meat no, inside because just... I don't see why dried meat needs to be stored inside anything. But there you go. For some reason, inside a stomach is this perfect sealed space. Yep. And, and they keep yeah. it under the beds because naturally, like being on the ground, well, under the beds is away from everything and out of the way. But if it's on the ground, like we discovered when we were there, even in the summer months, it gets cold at night. Yeah. So having it on the ground just has that cold contact and it just, it just keeps it all chilled. Yeah. Very, yeah. very chilled. Insane. So if you ever go into a girl, have a little peek under the bed. Who knows what you'll find? Stomach. Stomach. So, as I mentioned, they do make a cheese product called arul, the dry cheese bread. Now, this is also known as kashik, K-A-S-H-K, kashik. Maybe. Yeah. And so, what it's usually is like, it's drained fermented yogurt or sour milk, and then they let it dry. And it can actually be seen drying in front of girls all across the country. They'll do it in a variety of forms. They like might roll it into balls or they'll slice it into strips or they'll just keep it in chunks or whatever it is. Everybody likes it in, in many different ways. But you'll see these drying racks 
outside or even just they set up like poles and they'll have a string running between the two poles and there'll be like cheese hanging on strings from these poles, drying it out, drying it out. And I was one of these people, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you'll know that I quite enjoy some cheese and I thought, ooh, goody, cheese, cheese bread, that's got to be delicious, doesn't it? Nope. Nope. Doesn't have to be. Well, it's because it's fermented. I think fermented. A lot of- well, I mean, all cheese is a fermented product. Yeah, I know, but I don't know what they do to it. I don't know. It's but like they, sour, and they start with the sour milk that's already really weird and off, and yeah. then they, they it's already they like the it. milk is fermented before they turn it into cheese. Whereas I feel like most cheese making products, like they make the cheese, they separate curds and whey and everything. They do that first, and then they ferment it into a cheese product. Yeah. Whereas this, it's like. The milk is sort of fermented and then it's sent into cheese. I think. I don't know. Yeah, that's what it sounded like from what I read from the process of how they make it. All yeah. I know is that I ate it. It's incredibly hard, incredibly It'll sour. break your teeth. Yeah, I don't know how they actually do it. You've got it edged bits off the side of it with your teeth. Um, yeah, rock hard, very sour. Yeah. A bit like vomit. It does have a taste it's of like vomit. It's like cheese vomit. But apparently it's a very popular dish in a lot of it's regions. It's amazingly popular. In Iranian food, Kurdish food, Turkish, Mongolian, Central Asian, uh, Transcaucasian. Yeah, so the whole region of the Caucasus. The whole Caucasus. Apparently. Yeah, and pretty much the word for this dish in every language is like the local word for dried. So, arul means just dried. In, oh, right. And yeah, it's the same for all of these countries, but it's very, very popular all over. I haven't seen I've it. I've never seen it outside Mongolia. Maybe I have not been paying attention. Considering Maybe they make it better outside Georgia of Georgia is the Caucasus. I've never seen it in Georgia. No, I haven't seen any dried cheese here. I, yeah, I don't know, but uh, it was horrible. I and apparently it. you have to have grown up with it because we spoke to Mongolians who live there and like, yep, it's one of my favorite foods. You're not in Mongolia if you're not eating this every day. Yeah, they eat it like they eat potato chips. Yeah, it's a snack. It's yep. a dairy snack. Uh, I don't get it. I'm sticking with Parmigiano Reggiano, please. Uh, that's a good hard cheese that's amazing. Yeah, we'll have that. That's fine. So, yeah. Weird product, but you're going to get served it if you go to any local home, any local girl. And you have to take a bite and go, mmm, thank you. Thank you for this cheese, if you can take a bite. Otherwise, you just- You have to use your canines. You yeah. really have to get in the back of your mouth and use your- jaw. Oh, your molars. What's your canines? The little pointy teeth at the throat. No, you got to use your molars. Yeah, you get, get in, in the with back the molars. Your, your canines aren't going to cut it. No, nope, they're not good enough. No. Nah. Or you need to get like a, a dog to bite it for you and then give you a bit. And then you're eating dog mouth cheese, which doesn't sound yeah, good, I don't does think it, it could taste much worse. No, that's true. Yeah. Know, maybe the dog mouth will add a, a certain je ne sais quoi and make it a little <laughs> bit better. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway. So, so there you go. Are you ready for the creme de la creme of the milk products of white? The creme de la creme of white? Yes, the, the creamiest of the milk products. Well, it's not creamy at all. It's I not. I think I know what you're going for here. Arag. 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 It might be Arag. It is A-I-R-A-G, so Arag. I think it's Arag. Yeah. We don't know for sure. Uh, so it is a fermented dairy product, of course, because we're talking about white. Traditionally made from... Horse milk. Mare's milk. Specifically because yes. female horses. You don't want it from milk. a male milk male no, horse. No, the, the male version is a that bit different product. That is a different, different thing entirely. They use that for a completely different process. <laughs> the Mongolians are very, very proud of this dish. It is the traditional national beverage of Mongolia. The horse is, of course, the most important animal of Mongolia. It's how they get around. Like they've used it even from like, you know, Genghis Khan times. It was a proud creature. That they, they rode on. So, and they still ride on them today. So, the mare's milk has a really, really special status. It's also known as kumis in Russian. K-U-M-Y-S. Kumis. Or kimiths. Kumis. Yes, this mare milk is, uh, they, there's a very special way in which you have to milk the horse because obviously they're not big fans of it. Uh, <laughs> you've, got, you've got to talk to them a little bit first. They, what, they, what they do is one person sits down and they actually, like, you've got to put one arm around their hind leg so that they don't kick with the leg. So what they do, okay, what they actually do is they put the foal up there first and the foal starts milking. milking. So then and the- then they move the foal away. And then one person kind of keeps the foal in touch, like it's got to still be yeah. touching the mare the whole time. So one person holds the horse up against the mare, yeah. and then the other person reaches an arm around and stop it from kicking, and like milks it 
while holding the the leg in place. It's this really tricky wow. way of milking it. So what they say is that they milk horses between mid-June and early October is the time that they do it. And during one season, a mare produces approximately 1,000 to 1,200 litres of milk. Wow. And about half of that they take and the other half they leave it to their little foal. Wow, that's a lot of milk. And unfortunately, it gets turned into fermented mare's milk. Yeah, so they ferment it and it, uh, from the fer- fermentation process, it actually contains a so- small amount of carbon dioxide and up to 2% of alcohol you will get with this fermented beverage. And uh, if you're wondering about the fact that many Asians, especially Mongolians, are lactose intolerant. Mm, I wasn't, but sure. No, well, but, but now you think about it, you're like, that's right. There's a lot of people that are lactose intolerant. Yeah. It's actually, I found out that the fermentation destroys lactose in milk and it converts it to lactic acid, ethanol, and carbon dioxide. So that's where um, they get that little bit of alcohol from as well. But it takes all the lactose out of it and it makes it completely acceptable for lactose intolerant people to drink it, including Mongolians. But if you're lactose intolerant, I rag for the win. Yeah, I, or not. Because <laughs> it's not. It's Apparently, without fermentation, mare's milk contains significantly more lactose than milk from from cows or yaks. Yeah. So that it's like fully hardcore. Like, fortunately, I love lactose. I do love me I some lactose. Yeah, but not in this form. Now, would you like to explain your first ever introduction to Iraq? Tell me about the flavor profile. Well, What's the nose? What What do you What do you get getting on the palate? The nose is. Best kept away from the eye rag. That's the <laughs> best part of the nose. That's the best place for the nose. Yeah. So, I mean, we walked into a gur, and as we said earlier in the episode, you are expected to definitely take at least a sip of anything or a bite of anything that you're offered. Especially this. This Especially is so important this. to them. Yeah. This is like almost like a sacred drink. So you can you can put a bit on the floor that you're giving to the the earth and the gods. But you do have to drink some, or at least pretend to drink some. Yeah. If you don't like it, there, there are actually, in order to not be rude, there are apparently three things that you can, you can do. Well, one, you can just drink up. Suck it up, buttercup, and have but a drink. But then you go to another girl and they give you more. Exactly. So, you're always going to have to keep suffering. You can place the bowl to your lips and pretend to drink, but I think they'll, they'll know. They'll catch on. Well, as long as you're passing it around a group, which does happen. Then as long as someone drinks it. Some people do it. like it. We had one guy in our group that loved it, and he's like, this is the best. And he drank it all for everybody. But yeah, what you can apparently do is you can place your middle finger lightly in the milk and then flick three times. You flick once to your left, once to your right, then upwards as an offering to the spirits. And apparently that is totally acceptable in lieu of drinking. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like this weird, sour, nasty milk, basically. And 2% alcohol, you can't really taste that it's alcoholic specifically. You're going to have to drink a lot of that. No, it just tastes... It just tastes fermented. It tastes fizzy. Yeah. A weird fizziness. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm assuming it's going to give you the poopy poops if you drink a few liters of that. Oh, yeah. Because it, it can't be good for your bowels if you're not used to it. Even if you are used to it. Yeah. I don't think it's going to work out very well. So, I tried to drink as little as possible and pass it off to other people. But there were some people that really enjoyed it. So, One you person. Know. One non-Mongolian person. A Was big group of people. Six of us or something. I think like nine people. Nine. One foreigner who actually enjoyed it. Yeah. And so we let him drink all of it. And he I'm sure he had the poopy poops. He might have had the poopy poops. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be pretty convinced he did. But yeah, so uh there we go. We've covered most of the red. And the white. I know you are completely just gagging to get to Mongolia to to eat now after this episode. But I, mean, I think it's it's definitely, you know, while it wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed, as we said, I don't like lamb, so it was already not going to go so well for me. But I think there's so many amazing cultural things that you get to experience in eating with a family or watching someone cook or just... Being in Mongolia is a really special experience if you get to have it. I mean, how many people do you know who keep a stomach under the bed for refrigeration purposes? Exactly. And if they do, you should call the police. Yeah, but in this occasion, don't. this occasion, it's fine. Because the police will be about seven hours away off-road, so they're not going to get there anyway. But, you know, if someone's trying to do it in Florida, I recommend backing out and calling a grown-up. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, as a cultural experience, going to Mongolia is amazing. As a sightseeing, like nature experience, oh it's my goodness, incredible, so beautiful. As a once in a lifetime crazy life experience, it's completely essential. Go do it. As a foodie destination, it is not the place to choose. It's not, but it has a lot more going for it. So, you know, if you're willing to forego, you know, amazing cuisine to go on a epic adventure of a lifetime, highly recommend it. I don't think there's many places around the world where you can go where you can see all the stars and the Milky Way in the sky every night. Yeah. Like that sort of thing. Like I know there's some places maybe in Lapland where it's freezing cold most of the time. I know it's freezing cold in Mongolia a lot of the time as well, but I froze. <laughs> you know, just yeah, just to have some to be this far out of the way where you really are seven hours drive from the nearest settlement it's just that has no a hospital light pollution. or anything. Like yeah, it's just goes out in the middle of nowhere, maybe with a tiny bit of solar power occasionally for some yeah. lights, and like that's it. The saving grace we did find traveling across Mongolia is that there seemed to be an, in at least every bigger sort of town there was at least one Turkish restaurant. Yeah, sometimes. And by biggish town, there's like two big towns and the capital. And all the other ones are quite small. <laughs> so there's like two Turkish restaurants. But we were, we were saved by a couple of Turkish restaurants along the way. They had carrots. They did. I there don't know you go. How. A vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy place. I highly recommend you go if you want uh, an out there experience. It's also some of the hardest travel that we ever did. Although Definitely. since we were there, they have been building more roads. So I feel like it is going to be starting to get easier to get to some places, at least connecting between towns and cities. Maybe not for uh, going to the out of the way attractions, but uh, yeah, uh, the food is, is ridiculous. It is and, what it is. Uh, but Mongolians love it because they grew up with it. And exactly. I love Vegemite. Well, I can't talk. Yeah. Most people around the world think I'm disgusting that I like Vegemite. And I'm like, well. There are people that hate olives. And it's like, I, I don't get it. Exactly. But I grew up with it. I love it. So, yeah. The weird foods that we all have in our cultures that everyone else thinks is completely strange. And mare's milk and hard cheese that you can't even bite into that tastes a bit like vomit. Is, uh, it's all pretty, pretty weird stuff to me. But Mongolians love it. So, go give it a try. You have to, because otherwise you'll be kicked out of the gear. Yep. And yeah, enjoy. And if you want to read a little bit more and see some photos of some of these foods, we've got that on the blog, because we've got a full article on Mongolian food at foodfuntravel.com slash Mongolia podcast. So you can go and see what these weird things we're talking about actually look like. But bear in mind, this was back before we were good photographers. <laughs> this is a few years back. So, so the photos are a little rough. There's some rough photos, but you get the idea. And I don't think that many people have actually done this amount of eating around. Like our mission is always to try and eat as many different dishes whenever we go to a country or destination. And we really did try a lot of food. We did. And the menus are not that extensive. So we actually did try most of the traditional food apart from the stomach butter. I think I did try the stomach butter and it's like just really sour butter. It was really, really sour. I had like yeah. a taste because it was on the table. I'm like, yeah, I'm not eating that again. Yeah, there was a couple of things I left out just because they're quite similar to Chinese dishes. There was like the bort sog, which is their deep fried dough balls that they'll have for breakfast. And you have that with jam and cream. Oh, yeah. Um, that's very similar to the Chinese breakfast doughs that, that, that they have in China as well. So, um, but that's probably the only thing I left out. And we mentioned the wafers. They love their wafers now. And. Yeah, strange imported products that last forever. Yep, and biscuits. Just, yeah, crazy biscuits. Yeah, candies that are wrapped in, in little plastic wrappers so that they keep, basically stuff that keeps, yeah, because like, they might go to, into the city like once a season or just in the winter, pick up some stuff and then be back out in the steeps for like nine months. Yeah. A lot of people do move back to the capital, to Ulaanbaatar, and like live with heating. For a couple of months over the winter when it's really, really, really cold. But then the summer, they just live out the whole time. Yeah. Plus, also, there's lots of vodka. We did mention there that there was vodka. There is lots of vodka. So, yeah. The, the mare's milk is not what they are subsisting off for alcoholic beverages. They are drinking vodka. And there is beer as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They've made an effort to transport beer around the country. Vegetables, no. Beer, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So there you go. Mongolian food. It's pretty crazy cuisine. And we'll see you again on the next episode of The Dish in a couple of weeks. And of course, don't forget to rate and review, subscribe. 
if you are not already subscribed so that you get notifications about new episodes. And yeah, if you're going to leave a review, five stars is good. Anything less than five stars, that's not so good. Because anything less than five stars, people, you know, it's competitive now. Yeah. And I really, I really hate that. I think I actually, I like the fact that Netflix have switched to a just do you recommend or not recommend. And even Facebook has switched to that now for like restaurants and, and pages and like businesses on there. It's yeah. now like rather than stars, they're going recommends. Because like you might really like the podcast, but only want to give it four stars. And then that just brings our overall rating down. And then people look at it and they don't even listen to it. Because they're like, oh, it's only got like four, 4.2. I'll listen to something that's got five. I mean, I think right now we've got five, which is awesome. Thank you for everyone. Thank you, everyone who's left us a review. Uh, but yeah, like it's really difficult. I don't know people listen to this, whether you work online or you do anything that's got a business that gets reviews online. But any business owner will tell you it's really, really hard when someone randomly just leaves you two stars, no actual review to explain why. Yeah. They just give you two stars and you're like, could you please explain what we're doing wrong so we can make a difference? What happened with my Girls Talk Travel podcast? That uh, If anyone hasn't heard of that yet, I am doing a female travel podcast called Girls Talk Travel. But someone left a, a, a star rating without leaving a review and I don't know why. I don't know why they gave me low points. It makes me sad. It makes me cry. Yeah. And it makes me it makes my down. mascara run. But hopefully Apple will switch and other platforms will switch to the recommends or doesn't recommend sort of thing. Because then, like, it's sort of like, if people are looking at stars, they're going like, hmm, star rating's not high enough, I won't bother listening. Where if they're looking at recommends, they're like, 700 people recommend it, 30 people don't. Like, ah, oh, well, obviously a lot of people like it. So yeah. if I'm into that sort of topic, I will probably like it. Whereas the star review people just seem to ignore stuff if the star review is too low. Yeah. I do. I know I do. Maybe I know, not everyone I, does, no, but I, I think do. I, I do. I do too. So yeah, the recommends thing sort of works a bit better. Because then you don't have to love, love it, but you were like, well, I'd recommend it to someone who actually likes that sort of show, yeah. which is cool. If you don't like this sort of show, how did you make it this far through the episode? Why are you listening to us rant Why, on like, right now? Stop listening. Like, yeah, five stars or stop listening. I think that's the best way to go. <laughs> <laughs> or try another episode and see how that goes. All right. Cheers, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode of The Dish. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.